This is the Best Song Podcast, an oral history of the first 90 years of the Academy Award for Best Original Song. The Best Song Podcast was made possible by the generous support of the following. Paulus Edukas, Terry Freerks, Tina Fry, Jeff Glazer, Mark Hollingsworth, Douglas Meacham, Mark Smith, The Sokolov Family, Colin Stokes, Adrian Quinn Washington, and Ben Watson. Let's settle in now for another year in movie music with host Jeff Cummings. We've reached the year 1941 on the Best Song Podcast, and it's a year that lives in infamy for many reasons, not least of which is the Japanese bombing of Pearl Harbor on the Hawaiian Islands. Despite two years of declaring neutrality, at least in theory, the United States was officially thrust into World War II on December 6, 1941. Before that date, Hitler's German armies were storming all over Europe, with designs on taking over the Soviet Union as its final piece of European domination. The first people were executed in German concentration camps, and British Prime Minister Winston Churchill pressures those countries taken over by Germany to unite against Hitler. Despite all the devastating news in the world, some lasting positive developments took place in the United States. Commercial television made its debut in the U.S. in July as NBC and CBS became the first to transmit programming over the airwaves. And Citizen Kane, regarded now by film historians as one of the greatest, if not the greatest, film of all time, made its premiere on movie screens. Hollywood tried to keep things uplifting in 1941 as the threat of war loomed. After the Pearl Harbor bombing, Academy President and two-time Oscar winner Betty Davis suggested a scaled-back Academy Award ceremony in February 1942. The public had never been invited to this exclusive affair in the 14 previous Academy Award ceremonies, but giving the public entry to the ceremony seemed like the right thing to do. When things got heated, Davis resigned as Academy President just before she earned her fifth acting nomination. On the music side, The nomination process for original songs remained in the hands of the studios or production companies, and as the Best Song category entered its eighth year, the odds of having the first two-time Academy Award-winning songwriter was very high. Of the 16 men who would be nominated for Best Song of 1941, five had previously won the award. Four others had been previously nominated and were hopeful their name would be inside the Oscar envelope. In its second year of creation, the Academy's music branch finally had something to do. All of its members would be in charge of putting the nominees for Best Musical Score and Best Dramatic Score into the correct categories, and they would also be voting for the winner of the two scoring awards. But when it came to voting for the Best Song of the Year, that responsibility remained with the entire Academy membership. And the Academy allowed film extras to once again vote in that category after denying them the privilege for three years. Background actors far outnumber actual Academy members and those who work in other fields in the movie industry. In the 1940s, there were at least 4,000 background actors who were able to vote in the Best Picture, Acting, and Song Awards. So they definitely would continue to have an impact on the outcome of those awards. For the second straight year, nine songs are nominated for the Best Song Award, and we'll start our examination of those songs with those five songwriters who were already calling themselves Academy Award winners. Eight months after winning the Academy Award for writing When You Wish Upon a Star for Pinocchio, another Disney song scored by Frank Churchill and Ned Washington unspooled on the silver screen. This time, it was the feature film Dumbo. 
While Disney did not make a profit on the two feature animated films he released in 1940, Pinocchio and Fantasia, while now considered superior animated films, were not big box office draws and could not help recover the massive costs associated with making an animated film at the time. To save a little money, Disney asked that the next film run shorter, and so Dumbo, at just 64 minutes, fit the bill. And the lower cost helped save Disney as Dumbo made a profit of nearly $1 million. The nominated song from Dumbo is called Baby Mine, and it's possibly the only song in the film that had a chance at a nomination. Dumbo's mother, in an attempt to save her child from human cruelty, attacks the children mocking Dumbo and she is later restrained in her own cage. After Dumbo participates in a couple of adventures, he is taken by his mouse friend Timothy to his mother, still shackled in her cage. Unable to see Dumbo because of the shackles, she reaches out her trunk to caress and cradle him. While she does this, the off-screen voice of actress Betty Noyes sings Baby Mine, a tribute to the love that mothers give their children. While the song continues, we see the other animal mothers in the circus who are able to be close to their children. Watching Dumbo, it doesn't feel like a musical. Though the songs don't feel out of place, you could almost take all of them out, except the controversial When I See an Elephant Fly and The Story Would Not Be Lost. Though animated feature films were now accepted by the public, Walt Disney didn't want them to be viewed as long-form cartoons. He wanted them to feel real, so even the anamorphic characters needed a reason to sing, and not just sing because the rules dictated that an animated character could sing at any time he or she wanted. 
In the case of Baby Mine, it does help add emotion to the scene it's in, a scene that would not have succeeded without Churchill's music and Washington's lyrics. Perhaps, just perhaps, that connection would help the two win their second consecutive Academy Award plaque for songwriting. Looking to also win a second Academy Award was Jerome Kern, making the Oscar list for the first time since winning for The Way You Look Tonight five years earlier. He was back with his Broadway lyricist Oscar Hammerstein for the MGM musical Lady Be Good, starring Ann Southern and Robert Young as married songwriters who decide to divorce in order to help their careers. Kern and Hammerstein only had one song in this film, The Last Time I Saw Paris, and it turned to be the studio's nomination for Best Song. The movie revolves around a 1924 song written by George and Ira Gershwin called Oh Lady Be Good, from their Broadway musical of the same name. The movie mentions the Gershwins often, suggesting that George and Ira are well-known in the film's universe. But when we see Robert Young's Eddie playing the melody to Oh Lady Be Good on the piano, and when Southern's Dixie spends a long evening concocting the lyrics, George and Ira Gershwin's existence seems to disappear, especially when the song becomes a national hit for Eddie and Dixie. The song is so popular that the Songwriters National Organization holds a celebration in Eddie and Dixie's honor. It is there that we get the performance of The Last Time I Saw Paris. The setup for the performance proves that the film takes place in the present day when Adolf Hitler was destroying most of Europe during World War II, including Paris. The head of the Songwriters Organization says the song is, quote, the perfect marriage of words and music for that lost city, end quote. Eddie plays on the piano while Dixie sings, and her lyrics recall the sights and sounds of Paris when her heart was warm and gay. Pay attention to the first notes of the song, where Kern gives us a hint of the French anthem, Les Marseilles. A lady known as Paris Romantic and charming Has left her old companions And faded from view Lonely men with lonely eyes Are seeking her in vain Her streets are where they were But there's no sign of her left the same the last time I saw Paris her heart was warm and gay I heard the laughter of her heart in every street cafe the last time I saw Paris her trees were dressed for spring and lovers walked beneath those trees And birds found songs to sing I dodged the same old taxi cabs That I had dodged for years The chorus of their squeaky horns Was music to my ears The last time I saw Paris Her heart warm and gay no matter how they change her 
happy hours and people who shared them. Old women selling flowers in markets at dawn. Children who applauded Punch and Judy in the park. And those who danced at night and kept our Paris bright. Till the town went dark. I saw Paris, her heart was warm and gay. I heard the laughter of her heart in every street cafe. The last time I saw Paris, her trees were dressed for spring. And lovers walked beneath those trees, and birds found songs to sing. I dodged the same old taxi cabs that I had dodged for years. The chorus of their squeaky horns was music to my ears. The last time I saw Paris, her heart was warm and You can imagine that the song pulled on moviegoers' heartstrings when it played in Lady Be Good. Though the film itself would not have suffered if the song and its setup had been removed, Arthur Freed continued to show that he had good instincts in picking songs for MGM's musicals. The last time I saw Paris was not written for the movie, but rather as a standalone song in 1940 that started with a lyric by Hammerstein as a tribute to Paris. Jerome Kern rarely wrote songs based on lyrics, but he was able to do so with this one. Tony Martin recorded the song in 1940 and made it a hit. Arthur Freed, the producer of Lady Be Good, liked the song and found a way to put it in the movie, most likely because he felt it could be a real strong contender for an Academy Award. Even though the last time I saw Paris had not been written for a movie, the Academy rules at the time only stipulated that the song not have been previously used in a movie to be eligible. And when it came time for music department employees at MGM to vote on the song they felt should be the studio's Academy Award nominee, Freed likely used his influence to push the emotional The Last Time I Saw Paris over another song that might have been viewed as another love song, even though it had approached it in a different way. Your Words, My Music is the first song that Eddie and Dixie write after their divorce. It's performed not once or twice, but three times in the film, and details how two songwriters work well together, 
and how much the composer of the song loves the lyricist. Even though they were divorced at the time, Dixie makes it clear through the lyrics she writes for this song that she's still in love with Eddie. My music couldn't compare with Liszt's or Schumann's or gifted humans like Irving Berlin and Jerry Kern. My lyrics aren't in a class with Ira Gershwin. From Ira Gershwin, I've lots to learn. If our talents we combine, I think they might agree. You mean I'd bring out the Kern in you, and you'd bring out the Gershwin in me? Could be. Could be. Your words and my music could make such a beautiful song A simple chorus as warm as the spring will get our big thrill when we hear everyone singing your words and my music and all its theme may be warm with your words and my music a wonderful love song is born The Gershwins are mentioned in the song, even though they didn't write it in real life. Neither did Jerry Kern or Oscar Hammerstein, who also get a shout-out. This song was composed by Roger Edens and Arthur Freed, who worked together on the song Our Love Affair the previous year and each earned an Oscar nomination. Watching Eddie and Dixie put together the song likely gave us a window into how Freed and Edens worked together, though not the romantic portion of it. And this movie and many other so-called backstage musicals show that writing songs is not as easy as it might appear. It's interesting, though, that Freed, as producer of Lady Be Good, didn't get the song he wrote an Academy Award nomination. The next Academy Award winner among the 16 songwriters nominated in 1941 was Harry Warren, the composer behind 1935's Lullaby of Broadway. Warren and Mac Gordon, who were nominated together in 1940 for the song Down Argentina Way, worked on three projects released in 1941. Two of them involved the Brazilian singing and dancing sensation Carmen Miranda, who had made her American film debut with Down Argentine Way and was a new star for 20th Century Fox. The other film for Warren and Gordon was the musical Sun Valley Serenade, a vehicle to showcase the talent of the Glenn Miller Orchestra, the dancing Nicholas Brothers, and actress Dorothy Dandridge in one of her earlier films. It also gave us another opportunity to see Norwegian Olympic champion figure skater Sonja Henje in a romantic role, while also showing off some of her supreme skating skills. The nominated song from Sun Valley Serenade was Chattanooga Choo Choo, which has absolutely nothing to do with the script, though it is woven into the action as a way to buy time while we wait for Sonja Henje's character and her romantic interest played by John Payne to finish their afternoon skiing. 
Payne's pianist is late for rehearsal, and the band, led by Glenn Miller playing a band leader named Phil Corey, has the band run through a performance of Chattanooga Choo Choo while they wait. Warren uses almost all of the instruments in the band, trombones, trumpets, clarinets especially, to imitate the sounds of a train. After a lengthy instrumental introduction, Tex Beneke and the Modern Airs take the lyrics for a spin. After their performance, we suddenly see Dorothy Dandridge and the Nicholas Brothers performing their part of the song in front of a backdrop to resemble the caboose of the title train. It's nearly seven minutes of music and dance, one of the many performance set pieces director H. Bruce Humberstone and director Hermes Pan concede for the film. Chattanooga Choo Choo, run it down again. Let's go. One, two... Blowing eight to the bar. 
then you know that Tennessee is not very far. Shovel all a coal in, gotta keep it rolling. Ooh, ooh, Chattanooga, there you are. There's gonna be a certain party at the station. Satin and lace. I used to call funny face. She's gonna cry until I tell her that I'll never roll. So Chattanooga choo-choo, won't you choo-choo me home? Chattanooga, Chattanooga, all aboard. Chattanooga, Chattanooga, get aboard. Chattanooga, Chattanooga, Chattanooga choo-choo, won't you choo-choo me home? Chattanooga choo-choo. She said the Tennessee line, Jack. She means that she can't afford. I can't afford to board a Chattanooga choo choo. What have you got in there? Oh, got my fare. You say you have? Uh huh, but not a nickel to spare. Well, I do. Who declare? You leave the Pennsylvania station about a quarter four. Read a magazine and then you're in Baltimore. Dinner in the diner, nothing could be finer than to have your ham and eggs in Carolina. When you hear the whistle blowing, ain't you the boss? The Tennessee is not very far.
The song doesn't really do much to show off Mac Gordon's skills as a lyricist, and much as it gives Harry Warren a chance to display the talents that first made him famous in the early and mid-1930s. And by nominating this song over the others in Sun Valley Serenade, or the more than a dozen they wrote for the Carmen Miranda films, shows 20th Century Fox's desire to keep the grand musical performance alive and well, though most other studios decided against picking their big showcase numbers for Academy Award nominations. This performance of Chattanooga Choo Choo was recorded for commercial release by Glenn Miller's orchestra with Tex Beneke in the lead vocal. It went all the way to number one on the Billboard sales charts, spending a lengthy 23 weeks on the chart. When it came time for the Oscar nominations in early 1942, the song was on its way out of airplay, but certainly those who were voting on the winner of Best Song were very aware of the tune. Warren and Gordon wrote two other songs of great quality for Sun Valley Serenade, two songs that fit into the plot and have had some lasting power beyond the film. The song It Happened in Sun Valley is sung twice in the film, most memorably by the main cast as they ride sleighs from the train station to the Sun Valley Lodge. It's a love song, but the upbeat tempo and comical circumstances that cause the two people in the song to fall in love make it stand out. Also performed twice in the film is the more conventional love song, I Know Why and So Do You, which has a crucial performance near the end of the film when the two main characters are dancing to it while being stuck on the ski slope late at night. It would have been interesting to know about the campaigning that went into convincing the voters at 20th Century Fox to pick Chattanooga Choo Choo as the song representing 20th Century Fox at the Academy Awards. It's impossible to tell if Harry Warren and Matt Gordon had a good chance at winning with Inhabitants on Valley or I Know Why as much as they did with Chattanooga Choo Choo. Winning the Oscar for Best Song in 1939 was Over the Rainbow composer Harold Arlen. His lyricist for The Wizard of Oz, Yip Harburg, was putting a focus on Broadway for a couple of years, which led Arlen to work with three-time nominee Johnny Mercer for the dramatic musical Blues in the Night. The song that earned each of them another nomination was the title song, and if you thought the melody for Over the Rainbow was catchy, wait until you hear what Arlen cooked up for Blues in the Night. But before we hear about the song, you need to know more about this movie. By definition, the film Blues in the Night is a musical, but it does not follow the typical direction that just about every musical of the time followed. Whereas most musicals, whether in the movies or on Broadway, had a happy ending, Blues in the Night is very much in the vein of a B-movie film noir, with tragedy and despair looming around every turn. No one plays the roles for laughs, and even when you think there is going to be some good news for the jazz band that finds themselves working at a small bar in New Jersey, things turn south again. Even though it feels like a B-movie, there's a lot of great talent working on it. Director Anatole Litvak already had an Academy Award-nominated film on his resume, and cinematographer Ernst Haller had just recently won an Oscar for his work on Gone with the Wind. And of course, Harold Arlen and Johnny Mercer's involvement lit a little more prestige to the picture. Playing one of the band members was future Oscar-winning director Ilya Kazan. But all that talent did not impress critics. Fred Othman, a film critic in Florida, said it was, quote, the worst musical of the year, end quote. Baltimore Sun critic Donald Kirkley called it a bizarre screen oddity. And the New York Times' Bosley Crowther said that, quote, Harold Arlen and Johnny Mercer have produced a melodious soundtrack. And so far as this corner is concerned, that's just about all the film has to offer. 
The movie going public seemed to take that to heart, and the movie lost money. The title song, however, kept the film somewhat in the conversation. The opening four measures of the song, combined with the opening words, My Mama Done Told Me, are instantly catchy. We hear the song in a jail cell where four of the main characters are spending the night after getting in a fight at a club where they were playing jazz music. A black prisoner talks about getting the miseries in the night, setting up the song by one of his cellmates. This is a quintessential blues song that spills out of the jail cell halfway through the song to show us images of black men and women working in the cotton fields. My mama done told me when I was in knee pants my mama done told me, son, a woman of sweet talk and give you the big eye. But when that sweet talking's done, a woman's a two-faced, a worrisome thing who leave you to sing the blues in the night. Yeah, that peppy is great. Sure is, Jigger. The real misery ain't it, boys. You could sure beat that out, couldn't you, Jacob? We all could. We all will. Boy, that's the blues, the real low-down New Orleans blues. Now the rains are falling, get a train a calling, hooey. My mama done told me. Hear that lonesome whistle blowing across the trestle, hooey. My mama done told me. A wooey da wooey, old clickety clacks are coming back to blues in the night. From Natchez to Mobile, from Memphis to St. John, wherever the poor winds blow, I've been in some big towns and heard me some big One of the things that troubles me about the performance of Blues in the Night is the leader of the band, a white man named Jigger. Don't get me started on that name. While he and his bandmates are in the jail, they hear the song and suggest that they can play that kind of music and become an instant success. Now, this might be a conversation for someone more steeped in music history than myself, but the scene encapsulates how white men like Elvis Presley became wildly popular in the 1960s and 1970s by taking blues music and twisting it into rock and roll. Jigger and his band don't ask the black men in the jail to join them on their upcoming musical quest. They just soak up the feel in the song and essentially steal it. And the crowds, they love it. That's William Gillespie taking the lead on the vocals for Blues in the Night. Gillespie got little to no recognition for introducing the song to the world, which marked his film debut. He never got screen credit for any of his work, which would later include singing in Yankee Doodle Dandy and the George Gershwin biopic Rhapsody in Blue. Many people recorded Blues in the Night for commercial records, but Gillespie never got that opportunity and the opportunity to find the same success that Paul Robeson had with Old Man River from Showboat was denied him. Gillespie left the film industry in 1947 after working in fewer than 10 movies. Very similar to the trouble he had coming up with the main melody for Over the Rainbow, 
Arlen spent a lot of time trying to find the hook for Blues in the Night, and then it magically appeared. In the book They're Playing Our Song, Arlen told author Max Wilk that, quote, I didn't have a handle for this blues thing, but I knew I could write a blues song. Along the way, I got this little notion, and brother, the fires went up, and the whole thing poured out. I knew in my guts, without even thinking of what John could write for a lyric, that this was strong. You can't say that about all melodies. End quote. He later explained that the opening lyrics were initially discarded by Mercer until Arlen put them in his melody. There's another story about the song that involves a dinner party attended by Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney. Arlen took the song to that party as a tryout, and Judy Garland was so enamored with it she asked to hear it seven times. Johnny Mercer's lyrics reach back to his upbringing in Savannah, Georgia, where his biographer Philip Furia told of the end of the train line not too far from his house. Mercer's daughter Amanda recalled the story Johnny's mother used to tell about that train and the whistle that was, quote, so lonesome and so mournful, end quote. Johnny likely heard the story, too, with his mother making the train whistle sounds. Amazing that a story told to him as a child came back to him almost 30 years later and spending his childhood on an island off the coast of Georgia, largely inhabited by black people, certainly informed his writing for a black voice. The great lyricist Oscar Hammerstein would later say of Mercer that he was, quote, the most perfect American lyricist alive. What most people praise Mercer for was writing lyrics that would jump from genre to genre, a very difficult thing to do when one becomes popular. You get famous for one type of song, and everyone wants to hear another one just like that. As we'll see through his career, Johnny Mercer never pigeonholed himself. Artie Shaw and his band, with vocals by Hot Lips Page, was the first to release a recording of the song the same month as the film's release, and it's much different from Gillespie's version. It keeps some of the blues feel, but it veers more into jazz territory. The song would sell very well, though no one who would record the song in the decades to follow would match Gillespie's style which makes the fact that his performance was never commercially released all the more distressing. done told me when I was in knee pants my mama done told me son a woman will sweet talk and give you the glad eye but when the sweet talking's done a woman's a two-faced a wasn't thing who leave you to sing the blues in the night so even though the film in which it premiered was not a success it was clear that the song Blues in the Night was one of the crowning achievements of music in 1941. Alright, so now that we've discussed the songs written by the year's previously honored Academy Award winners, let's hear the remaining five nominated that year. Cole Porter returns as a nominee after a five-year absence for the song Since I Kissed My Baby Goodbye in the film You'll Never Get Rich. Fred Astaire was also back after a two-year slump of poorly received films after he and dancing partner Ginger Rogers went their separate ways. 
Columbia Pictures had been pressuring Astaire to work with rising star Rita Hayworth in two movies that already had scripts and would enable Astaire to show off those dance moves that had once made him a top Hollywood star. Astaire said yes to those films, which would be bookends to another film Astaire was committed to alongside Bing Crosby. You'll Never Get Rich puts Astaire in the army as Robert, a theatrical choreographer who is drafted and decides to use the time in the army to get out of a romantic scandal involving him and Hayworth's Sheila. It's a little bit more comedic than we're used to seeing from Fred Astaire, and seeing him in a uniform is a bit unusual after so many movies he was in Top Hat and Tails. Cole Porter had been out of the songwriting business from 1937 to mid-1938 after suffering a crippling horse accident that nearly required his legs to be amputated. He returned to Broadway for three musicals before he contributed to the movies again, and for that, it was Broadway Melody of 1940, a moderate success for MGM. Porter's heart was always in Broadway, and he continued to churn out song scores for musicals starring Ethel Merman and Danny Kaye. Porter's involvement in You'll Never Get Rich was brought on partially by the studio, but also from Astaire's request that Porter write some songs for the movie. Astaire originally wanted Irving Berlin, but Berlin was busy working on that Bing Crosby movie I told you about earlier. Porter's contributions to You Never Get Rich were not instant hitmakers, but served the film well. The nominated song, Since I Kissed My Baby Goodbye, is very similar to Blues in the Night, in tone and in the setting where it's performed. Astaire's character, Robert, has been thrown into the military camp's guardhouse for a minor scuffle. That night, as he lies on a cot in one of the cells, four black men begin singing a blues song about missing a woman despite being surrounded by beautiful things such as fireflies and magnolia trees. Sound familiar? Yeah, it's very much like the scene that sets up blues in the night. Both films were released two months apart and likely filmed around the same time, so it's very unlikely that Cole Porter knew that Harold Arlen and Johnny Mercer were also writing a blues song performed in a jail cell by a group of black men and vice versa. The coincidence, though, are startling. Anyway, after the first verse of the song, Astaire begins to dance to the song. At first, he's tapping in time to the music, but what really stands out is how loud he's tapping. Whether it's intentional or not, the tapping almost drowns out the song performance. Near the end, Astaire's tapping is out of rhythm of the song and doesn't even fit the mood. The song is sad, but Astaire is tapping as if things are fun and fancy-free. It feels like the song and the dance were not created together. Still I'm cold Since I kissed my baby 
The song selection by those at Columbia who voted for Since I Kissed My Baby Goodbye as the Academy Award selection shows the direction studios are going to get their prestige song of the year picked. Another song in You'll Never Get Rich, So Near and Yet So Far, is a better song, and the dance performance that follows is more beautiful. It involves a stare sort of professing his love for Hayworth even though he can't have her because she's attached to another man. They begin to dance in a mix of ballroom and Latin styles, turning into one of Astaire's best duo dances in many years. But as I've mentioned before, these types of songs have not been nominated for the Academy Award often in recent years, though So Near and Yet So Far might have been a viable contender in the first three years of the best song category. My dear, I have a feeling you are so near and yet so far you appear like a radiant star first so near then again so far i just start getting you keen on clinches galore with me when fate steps in on the scene and mops up the floor with me no wonder i'm a bit under par for you're so near and yet so far my condition is only so-so cause whenever i feel you're close oh you turn out to be oh so The next nominated song on our list comes from another comedy, All-American Co-Ed. Running at 58 minutes, it gets the story in and out quickly with very little wasted film time. One might argue that the only filler space in the movie comes in the performance of the Academy Award-nominated song, Out of the Silence. But first, I need to tell you a bit about the movie's plot. If you've seen the 1959 movie, Some Like It Hot, you could figure out the plot of All-American Co-Ed. A group of male entertainers at Quinston University who dress up as women in their stage shows want revenge on the all-female Mar Bryn College for attacking their show. Fraternity President Bob infiltrates Mar Bryn's female entertainment group by dressing as a woman, then falling in love with the group's leader, Virginia, 
played by singer and sometimes actress Frances Langford. One night, the girls go outside and have a sing-along. One of the songs is Out of the Silence, in which Virginia sings about a love that she hopes will appear out of nowhere to cure her loneliness. Oh, 
The song was written by Lloyd Norlin, who was making his movie songwriting debut at the age of 23. He was pursuing his master's degree in music at Northwestern when he wrote Out of the Silence for a college songwriting contest. Norlin won the contest and caught the attention of Hal Roach Studios, which bought the song to use in All-American Co-Ed. Not bad for 23 years old to get a song put into a Hollywood movie and get your first Oscar nomination out of it. You might remember that Herb Magidson was just 29 years old when he won the first Best Song Academy Award in 1935, so Lloyd Norlin was now the youngest ever Academy-nominated songwriter. But would he become the youngest winning songwriter? Established songwriters Charles Newman, who has no relation to the famous Newman music family, and Walter Samuels wrote three other songs for All-American Co-Ed, but none of them have the staying power or heft that Out of the Silence has. And Hal Roach likely used Lloyd Norland's young age as a storyline during the voting period, selling what he believed would be a young, new Hollywood talent. Another screwball comedy has the next nominated song on our list, and the film is called Las Vegas Nights. Louis Alter, who wrote the nominated song A Melody from the Sky in 1936, earned his second Academy Award nomination for the song Dolores, teaming up with lyricist Frank Lesser. Lesser worked with composer Burden Lane on two other songs for the film, both of which could have been equally considered for an Academy Award nomination. None of the three songs carry much heft in the film and do nothing for the plot. Edit them out of the film and not much is missing. There is one song performance in the film that carries a lot of significance. It's the song I'll Never Smile Again, which had been a hit in 1940 for 12 weeks by a new singing star named Frank Sinatra. Las Vegas Nights features many performances by Tommy Dorsey and his orchestra, and Sinatra had just become the lead vocalist for Dorsey's group in 1939. So when Dorsey was signed on to appear in Las Vegas Nights, Sinatra was able to make his film debut. This was before he was known as Old Blue Eyes, and before he began putting his own mark on popular American music. Dorsey had proclaimed of Sinatra's voice that, quote, I used to stand there so amazed I'd almost forgotten to take my own solos, end quote. Unfortunately for Sinatra, the first song he sings on film was not nominated for an Academy Award. But back to the Academy Award-nominated song, Dolores. As I said, it has no relevance to the plot, but its performance is woven seamlessly into the proceedings to make its two performances less jarring. Bert Wheeler plays Stu, the husband of one of the members of a female singing trio looking for work in Las Vegas. After he gambles away the $1,500 they had, Stu stumbles across a homeless trio of musicians playing a song in Spanish. That's our song Dolores, performed in Spanish by the uncredited performers. Later, when the female singing trio gets a chance to make more money working at a nightclub, Stu performs his comedy act, beginning with a performance of Dolores in English, accompanied at first by the musicians from earlier. 
Tommy Dorsey and his band will come in near the end of the song and change the beat into an upbeat swing tempo. That will lead into a brief comedic dialogue that will be followed by Stu dancing and singing Dolores alongside a group of dancing women. It's a scene that lasts almost five minutes and stands out as the film's showstopper. How I love the kisses of Dolores Above me, she whispers, love me, and throws a rose. Ah, but she is twice as lovely as the rose she throws. I would like to die with my Dolores. Imagine eyes like moonlight, a voice like music, and lips like wine. What a break if I could make Dolores <laughs> mine, oh, mine. How I love the kisses of Dolores.
Frank Lesser had worked odd jobs before settling on Tin Pan Alley Lyricist in the early 1930s. That led to a contract working for Universal Pictures that produced few songs of notoriety and a contract with Paramount in 1939 after marrying his wife, actress Lynn Garland. His primary songwriting partner was Burton Lane, hence their work on two songs for Las Vegas Nights, but it was Louis Alter who gave Lesser his first Academy Award nomination. As for Alter, this will be his second and final Academy Award nomination. He returned to symphonic works after serving in the Air Force in World War II, and his 1929 instrumental composition, Manhattan Serenade, became a hit in the 1960s and 1970s. Las Vegas Nights wasn't the only Paramount Pictures film to feature original songs, but apparently there was enough support for Dolores as an Academy Award nominee over any of the songs Johnny Burke and Jimmy Van Heusen wrote for Road to Zanzibar, the second film featuring Bob Hope and Bing Crosby. The standout song was It's Always You, which Crosby first sings to Dorothy L'Amour in the film and then reprises it when he thinks she has died. That's not bad. Now, if you could just take it down a half tone. Okay, Shorty. Orchestra, please. Whenever it's early twilight, I watch till a star breaks through. Funny, it's not a star I see, it's always you. Whenever I roam through roses, Lately, I often do Honey, it's not a rose I touch It's always you Jimmy Monaco had been writing songs with Burke for many years, but that relationship ended suddenly just before they were assigned to write for Road to Zanzibar. Enter Van Heusen and the start of a very illustrious partnership writing tunes for Bing Crosby. Van Heusen, who changed his name from Chester Babcock because a music executive thought his last name was too pornographic, started writing songs with Harold Arlen's younger brother Jerry in 1932. Van Heusen spent a couple of years as Monaco's transcriber and had a off-again, on-again relationship writing songs with Burke. Van Heusen moved to Hollywood from New York in 1940 and worked right away with Burke on a small film called Love Thy Neighbor. When Road to Zanzibar needed a song composer, Crosby and Burke both convinced Jimmy Van Heusen to stay. The songs weren't major hits, but cemented one of the lasting relationships in film music. Rest assured, we're going to hear more from Burke and Van Heusen throughout this podcast. Earning their first Academy Award nominations were composer Hugh Prince and lyricist Don Ray for their work on the comedy musical Buck Privates. The movie was the second feature film for the comedy duo of Bud Abbott and Lou Costello, but their first as the headliners. The two had already become famous for their Who's On First act, and if you've not heard it, I strongly recommend listening to one of the most classic comedy bits in history. And when it came time to expanding their act into feature film length, 
Boy, did they roll with that added responsibility. Their comedy act shows up often in this film about men signing up for the peacetime draft of 1940 and engaging in a mock battle. The film was released in January 1941, almost a full year before the United States officially entered World War II, so the thought of two dim-witted privates such as the one played by Abbott and Costello going to war was not a realistic thought and good comedy fodder. The song that was nominated from Buck Privates was originally planned to be sung by Lou Costello, but that was quickly dropped once the Andrews sisters became a part of the movie. The Andrews sisters had been radio stars since 1937. By the time the United States officially entered World War II, the Andrews sisters were synonymous with wartime entertainment, singing to troops all over the world. Their brand of swing and blues songs fit well in Buck Privates, where they played hostesses at the training base where Abbott and Costello and others are learning how to be soldiers. At various random times, they appear to sing a song that really has no relation to the plot. In the case of the nominated song called The Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy of Company B, it takes place as a space filler in the film while we wait for Costello to change clothes to participate in a boxing match. The song's lyrics suggest that the title Bugle Boy is a part of the film, but the characters in Buck Privates are in Company K, not Company B. The sisters tell of this trumpet player who is drafted and becomes a well-known bugle player who knocked everyone's socks off with his version of the Reveille. The song is written in the style of jump blues, which would be best described today as a mixture of blues and rock and roll. Chicago way. He had a boogie style that no one else could play. He was a top man at his craft. But then his number came up and he was gone with the draft. He's in the army now, a blowing reveille. He's the boogie woogie bugle boy of Company B. They made him blow a bugle for his Uncle Sam. It really brought him down because he couldn't jam. The captain seemed to understand. Because the next day the cap went out and drafted a band. And now the company jumps. When he plays Reveille, he's the boogie woogie bugle boy of Company B. A toot, a toot, a toot, a toot, he blows it a to the bar. In boogie rhythm, he can't blow a note unless the bass and guitar is playing with him. He makes a company jump when he plays Reveille. He's the boogie woogie bugle boy of Company B. He was a boogie woogie bugle boy of Company B. As a and when he plays, he makes the company jump A to the bar. He's a boogie boogie bugle boy of Company B. Do 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 da da do da da. Do do he blows it A to the bar. He can't blow a note if the bass and guitar isn't with him. And the company jumps when he plays Reveille. He's a boogie boogie bugle boy of Company B. the same way in the early bright they clap their hands and stamp their feet 
The song instantly became a hit for the Andrew sisters, and when they began touring the world to entertain the troops, Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy became their most requested song. The song's creators, Hugh Prince and Don Ray, knew the Andrew sisters well, having written songs for them for the past five years. If you listen to a previous Andrew sister song that Ray and Prince wrote about a talented piano player, you can hear the similarities. Donkey Village in Texas There's a guy who plays the best piano by far He can play piano any way that you like it But the way he likes to play is aid to the bar When he plays it's a ball He's a daddy of them all The people gather around when he gets on the stand Then when he plays he gets a hand The rhythm he beats puts the cats in a trance Nobody there bothers to dance But when he plays with the bass and guitar Gene Autry and Fred Rose make up the remaining songwriters nominated for an Academy Award for their work in 1941, and it's for the song Be Honest With Me from the film Riding on a Rainbow. In 1941, Gene Autry was one of the top ten movie stars thanks to his somewhat unique brand as a cowboy singer. Along with Roy Rogers, Autry helped keep the western genre alive, but Autry would remain the biggest draw throughout the 1940s. Fred Rose, who was born in Indiana, would become one of the top country songwriters of the 1940s thanks to his association with Autry and another wannabe country western singer-actor, Ray Whitley. Jewel Stein and Sol Meyer wrote many of the songs in Riding on a Rainbow, all of which were used as part of the traveling show on a riverboat. The title song was composed by Don George, Teddy Hall, and Gene Herbert and would have been a worthy candidate for an Academy Award nomination given that it's performed three times and is, well, the title of the movie. I'm riding on a rainbow Riding high Rambling through the mountains my horse, my dreams, and I Riding on a rainbow Through the blue Rounding up the sunbeams Just a footloose buckaroo But it's possible Gene Autry used his influence to convince people at Republic Pictures to pick the one song he wrote for the film. It's only performed once, but Be Honest With Me is memorable as a plain cowboy love song. The film involves Gene Autry playing a rancher named Gene Autry, who infiltrates a riverboat's entertainment crew to investigate a bank robbery. As an audition for a job in the show, Gene and his sidekick, Frog, armed with a squeeze box and guitar, play Be Honest With Me. (laughs) 
honest with me, dear, whatever you do. Remember your mind, dear, so always be true. Wherever you wander, on land or on sea. If you really love me, be honest with me. My poor heart would break, dear, if you were untrue. Asleep or awake, dear, I dream about you. Oh, you are my darling, you're all that I see. If you really love me, be honest with me. Someday I'll return, dear, and make you my own. And how I will yearn, dear, when I'm all alone. I'll never forget, dear, your sweet memory. If you really love me, be honest with me. Though the song pleases those who are listening, Gene doesn't get the job in that scene. So, in essence, the song is a dud. But in terms of getting an Academy Award nomination, it's a hit. And there's a bit of history made with the performance that would not have happened if any of the other songs from the movie had been selected for a nomination. Because Gene Autry wrote the song and performed it on screen, he becomes the first songwriter to introduce his own Academy Award-nominated song in the film. Gene Autry had been writing many of his own songs for the movies since he began acting in 1934, but now he was able to make a notch in movie history. Very few songwriters also had acting aspirations, and most couldn't hold a tune well enough to perform their songs on film. Artie Shaw wrote the song Love of My Life for a 1940 second chorus, but he does not sing the song or even perform any of the music, so he doesn't count. But until Gene Autry broke through with his first and only Oscar nomination, the line between actor and songwriter had essentially been a big one. And those are the nine songs nominated for the Best Song Academy Award of 1941. As a reminder, the songs are Baby Mine, be Honest With Me, Blues in the Night, Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy of Company B, Chattanooga Choo Choo, Dolores, The Last Time I Saw Paris, Out of the Silence, and Since I Kissed My Baby Goodbye. Film critics and Hollywood journalists weren't offering up their picks for the annual awards as they do now, but the conventional wisdom was that Blues in the Night or Chattanooga Choo Choo would be this year's best song winner. Buddy DeSilva, who had given out the best song to Over the Rainbow in 1940, came back to announce the name of 1941's best song, and there were likely some audible gasps when he read that Jerome Kern and Oscar Hammerstein won for the last time I saw Paris. Kern became the first songwriter to win two Academy Awards, but he was not pleased with the result. He believed at first he had no chance of winning, so he stayed home. Kern even told the media he had voted for Blues in the Night. Because the song had essentially been produced, performed, and widely heard for about a year before Lady Be Good was released, Kern believed the last time I saw Paris had basically found a loophole in the rules and made its way onto the nominations list because it had never appeared in a motion picture. The nominations were announced on February 6th, less than three weeks before the award ceremony, so 
Kern likely had no time to ask for his song to be removed as a nominee. There's no indication that Kern had tried to stop the song from being on the list of eligible songs that employees of MGM Music Department used to vote for the studio's nominee. But that might have been the ideal time for Kern to raise his objection. When the last time I saw Paris won the Academy Award, Kern believed it had an unfair advantage because it had been on voters' minds for more than a year and likely influenced voting. Variety magazine didn't mince words, blaming the return of the background actors to best song voting as the main culprit. Hammerstein reached out to Johnny Mercer, the lyricist behind Blues in the Night, to essentially apologize for the result. Kern went one step further, pressuring the Academy to change the rules involving eligibility for songs to expressly mention that they must not have been previously produced and must be written for the film. The Academy took their first two-time Academy Award-winning songwriter seriously, adding a clause in the rules for 1942 that songs needed to be, quote, written for and used in a motion picture during the award year, end quote. Whether or not the songs or the songwriters find a loophole in the rules going forward remains to be seen, but 1942 will be the first time the phrase original song can be expressly used to describe the category and the nominees. As another bit of history to go with Kern's historic win, Lloyd Norlin missed out on a chance to become, at the time, the youngest Academy Award winner at 23 years old. This would also be his only association with the Academy Awards. In 1942, not long after finding out that he would not be an Academy Award winner, Norlin turned down a contract with Paramount Pictures, choosing to serve as a tail gunner in the Army Air Forces. He was unable to sign that contract with Paramount after the war, so he returned to Northwestern University to become a music professor. A brief time working with Warner Brothers followed, but it would be his local music contributions that would bring him recognition in the form of Emmys for working on the New Performers TV program in 1970 and 1971. Writing Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy and earning an Academy Award nomination for it would turn out to be the career pinnacle for Hugh Prince. He would later write lyrics for a few more movies, but Bugle Boy was the only one that gained any notoriety. As for Don Ray, he's going to have a lot of prominence in one of the most curious entries into the Academy Awards song list the following year. We'll have more first-time nominees to learn about on the next episode of the Best Song Podcast, as well as some veterans to the Academy Awards looking for more recognition from their peers. We'll listen to more classic songs and some whose popularity barely extended past their film performance. This is why I love doing this show, to bring you those songs that have been lost to history, as well as the ones that were timeless from the moment the first note was played. It's been so much fun singing along with you on this episode. Let's do it again next time. The Best Song Podcast is not authorized or endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law.